0: How about you try to play a tune? Elliot, this is jazz. There are no rules. It It just just flows. flows!
1: Welcome to the Indiana Jones universe, the podcast that explores the incredible adventures of the world's greatest globetrotting archaeologist, Indiana Jones. Each episode is a casual and somewhat humorous, opinionated conversation with a slightly sophisticated analytical study of the expanded universe content from the Indiana Jones franchise. You can expect to find discussions about the adventures of young Indiana Jones, the further adventures of Indiana Jones comic books, the staff of Kings and Emperor's Tomb video games, the Indiana Jones novels, the original soundtracks, and so much more.
0: hello everyone and welcome back to the indiana jones universe podcast today we will be doing episode 73 Mystery of the Blues, the film score, composed by Joel McNeely. It's performed by the Bavarian Philharmonic Orchestra, and you can find it on Volume 3 CD of the, you know, TV credits and DVD credits. And today we'll just be going over 13 tracks, about half an hour of music, but we've got a lot to say, so um, I look forward to this one.
1: Yeah, I'm excited for this one. Uh, Great to be back, Mystery of the Blues. uh, Quite an interesting episode that is so music-centric that this film score review, I think, is going to be one of our more ambitious ones. The genre has completely changed now, from a traditional sort of classical score to jazz, uh, which, you know, as much as I love jazz... I really don't know anything about jazz so uh, we definitely put in some extra research into this one uh, also talking a little bit about the episode itself and how sort of uh, this episode was made because not only do we have jazz music but the whole premise of the episode as we talked about in our last episode is focused on jazz so I think there's a lot of really interesting things to look at with this uh, episode as always we're going to be following along with youngindianajonesmusic.com as we take a look at this score so kind of an ambitious one that I'm excited to tackle with you as well Elijah and let's just jump in before we even talk about the tracks Uh, we've got 13 of them as you said 30 minutes of music here which is just what we have available to us it's not the entirety of the score obviously Um, But I thought we could talk about some kind of fun facts and the the behind-the-scenes sort of work that went into this episode, because there's a lot of cool things to talk about. And the first one that I wanted to mention was that uh, Joel McNeely uh, was actually consulted before post-production began on this episode, which in the film industry is pretty unusual. Usually, you know, the film's over, and then, you know, uh, the director and the composer have their spotting session looking at the, you know, mostly finished product of the film and decide where to put the music but here, uh, McNeely actually worked with Lucas uh, before they were in, you know, shot the episode and were, you know, working on the script to decide what jazz selections they would use in the episode, uh, which I think is really cool.
0: Yeah. And another thing about that, I mean, McNeely was on set showing the actors how to use this in- the instruments. And in a way, that reminds me of a Master and Commander. Um, I don't know if you all have seen that great movie. Kind of ties into another one of my interests, but they actually, you know, taught the actors how to play violin and cello. So yeah, it's really cool when the the musicians from the post-production get involved with the actual filming of the episode.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really great comparison, actually. A uh, fantastic movie, by the way, which also has kind of a similar epic period feel when you talk about, like, historical stories to uh, Young Indy. So that is a good comparison. And to your point about that specific scene and also Mystery of the Blues, what I think is really well done is you forget that these actors aren't actually musicians. Just the musicality that I think that they brought to these roles, in addition to actually technically holding the instruments the right way. I mean, there's a couple of, you know, riffs that Indy has when he's playing soprano sax, and you'll notice he kind of tips his sax up in the air a little bit. I think it's really, really convincing when you see it uh, on the screen. So I really, really enjoyed that attention to detail there. And speaking of the jazz, another thing we should mention is the majority of the cues in this episode are actually adaptations of famous jazz pieces originally composed by other musicians, uh, mainly Sidney Bechet, who was the focal point of this episode. Obviously, he was a big figure uh, during this time period. There's some cues adapted from uh, people like Ethel Waters. And when McNeely selected these with Lucas, the idea was to sort of reinvent them and give them more of a new sound to it.
0: Yeah, and I think another thing you can say about it is like most of this music is diegetic. It's a unique episode, you know, focusing on music. Um, But yeah, so most of this music is diegetic. It's taking place with the characters. And there's only a few instances that we're reviewing today that actually aren't diegetic music.
1: Right, exactly. And those are usually McNeely's original compositions. So, like, the warehouse battle sequence, obviously, that was all of sort of uh, his phenomenal sort of compositional work. And not to sort of, like, you know, downplay his efforts here, but, you know, uh, most of this, uh, you know, if you look these... Uh, tracks up on you know old vinyl records and things like that you will find these same tracks Uh, a lot of them have been released on albums by Sidney Bechet so if you like some of the music here and you're you know really into jazz you can go you know home and look at some of these other sort of original uh, cues what did they originally sound like in that sort of sense Um, and another thing that's interesting about this episode is because of the substantial amount of music in this episode I mean talk about wall-to-wall music my god there is so much music in this episode for obvious reasons um, but the soundtrack release that we're looking at, the Brez Zeroban release on the Volume 3 CD, uh, there's only 10 tracks in that album, and those were actually recorded in their full, unedited form. So in the actual episode, you know, it transitions and fades in and fades out from, you know, Indiana's dorm to him being at the Royal Gardens listening to Sidney Bechet, you know, play a new set, right? Things like that. So most of the music from this episode doesn't appear on the CD just generally, and even the tracks that do appear on the CD in the episode are actually a little bit different, and we're actually going to hear some music that you don't hear in the episode itself. So, kind of a cool, you know, aspect of the soundtrack release, uh, but also a little disappointing to not have, you know, so much more music from this great episode. Yeah, and uh, back to the diegetic
0: stuff, I mean... Uh, The only other composer here who has done non-diegetic music in this episode is actually John Williams. Uh, We see Joel McNeely re-recorded and arranged some new renditions of the Raiders' March and Desert Chase for this episode.
1: Right, and I think they're very fitting for uh, the Harrison Ford bookend sequences. I mean, it just really adds that sort of nice authenticity. And again, I mean, Harrison Ford has a beard in this episode. You know, times have changed, so the music has to adapt to that. And I think it uh, would have been really nice if they included those, but I'm sure there were some, you know, rights issues they had to work around. Yeah, and one really interesting thing that I learned uh, in kind of preparation for this episode is obviously you'll notice that the Bavarian Philharmonic Orchestra, which is an orchestra that was used extensively throughout uh, young Eddie's time, you know, recording the music for... the show Uh, but in particular there's obviously jazz band uh, that is used in a lot of these recordings and one of the soloists who played all of Sidney Bechet's parts was a guy by the name of Bob Wilber turns out Bob Wilber was actually one of Sidney Bechet's protégés when he was young Uh, he worked with him and admired him for a long time during his music career so there was actually a little bit of a connection uh, that Bob Wilber had to Sidney Bechet and I think it comes across very well in the style that Sidney Bechet plays in
0: I mean, another thing we could talk about is Maria Howell. She's just so good in this episode. Uh, I think we might have mentioned it last one, but, you know, she's the actress who played Goldie and is actually a professional singer in real life and was a singer before she was an actress. So having her step in and do all this work on the show live and also in post-production, it's really quite amazing.
1: Yeah, I think there wouldn't be a better person to talk to for this episode than Maria Howell. I mean, imagine how much behind the scenes stuff she would be able to tell us about the music in this episode and what transpired. And yeah, it's kind of cool to have, you know, a professional musician taking on the role of Goldie. Um, she's a fantastic singer, and we'll talk about her in a lot of these uh, sort of uh, tracks that we get to today. Um, and then a couple of final fun facts uh, Young Indie composer Steve Bramson, uh, who composed uh, the sole episode Treasure of the Peacock's Eye, uh, he actually went to school uh, with Joel McNeely at the Eastman School of Music. Both of them uh, were primarily uh, jazz musicians, and he actually orchestrated this episode. Uh, kind of cool to have that connection. Uh, he, of course, went on to you know score one of the last episodes of the series, and probably the coolest fun fact that we could say about this, uh, which I actually learned in an interview uh, that uh, Joel McNeely did a couple of years back. Uh, he actually played all of the Soprano sax parts for Indie's performances. How cool is that? Uh, Joel McNeely himself, whenever you hear Indy, uh, you know, ripping it on the Soprano sax, how good or bad it may be. Uh, that is Joel McNeely back there. And, uh, yeah, kind of interesting. Obviously, soprano sax, not something you're going to find in your typical 50, 60-piece orchestra. So uh, it's kind of cool that Joel McNeely himself played all the parts. Um, Thomas Newman, uh, another film score composer who does that a lot, he usually plays most of the piano parts in a lot of his scores, which is really cool. Uh, so I like that Joel McNeely kind of stepped in there and and did that. It's, it's a nice touch, I think.
0: Um, and another thing we can say is that And actually, in 1993, McNeely received the Emmy nomination for his Outstanding
1: Achievement in Music Direction. I know, well-deserved, I think, in this episode. uh, Lots to talk about in terms of the process for creating the music for this episode. And then... I mean, let's just dive into it. How great is this music? We've been talking about it for a little bit. And uh, we'll play some samples as we uh, go throughout all of these tracks. And let's start with the first track in the album, Sweetie Dear. And this plays at the beginning of the episode when Harrison Ford uh, recalls his old younger days as a waiter at Colosimo's and this transition uh, into this 1920s environment. We see Colosimo's as this great sort of restaurant. Live jazz is playing. People are dancing all, all along, you know, throughout the restaurant. And it comes up with this lively, fast tempo feel. I love the start of this, which has this phenomenal trumpet theme, wonderful harmony. And I love the transition to this sort of small improv section with the clarinet where all of sort of the background instruments kind of drop out for a second. Uh, And you've got the drums and the piano and the double bass, uh, the three instruments in jazz that most typically hold the rhythm for the piece. They're they're anchoring the piece. And uh, you really, I think, have this great sort of 1920s feel coming off of this first track in the album, which originally was composed by Sidney Bechet, but I think has a nice adaptation for this episode.
0: Yeah, this is a really good one. I I like the upbeat, you know, tempo and everything. It's pretty much a good, fun piece, um, and it's got some cool stuff in it. we got some cool trills and some awesome piano. Oh yeah, that gets me jamming. Um, but yeah, let's take a listen to it, sweetie dear.
1: we transition into this next section of Sweetie Deer, which has a ton of improvisation. Obviously, we learned from Cindy Boucher in the episode, two things that make jazz jazz, rhythm and improvisation. And it starts with this fantastic melodic structure at the beginning. And we see how uh, both the clarinet and the trumpet get their chance to sort of improvise a solo here.
0: Yeah, I mean, this clarinet solo is really great. I love the trill. It really, I guess, starts the solo and then it goes into the rest of that, and it's going off and everything. And you transition to this trumpet solo, which, oh, that's pretty good. I mean, I'm not a jazz expert, but from my understanding, you have your in your set, you start with the basic melody, and then from there, once you've played it through, you take it apart, and you play the same notes, but just in a little different order. And so yeah, I think this improv is done really well. Yeah, so let's get into this third section. Oh my gosh, I love this piano solo you're about to hear. Oh yeah, I mean, it's so good. I mean, I you know, it's got all these, you know, arpeggios and stuff that following arpeggio entrance, it's just like, it gives me the same feeling that certain Scottish folk music gives me and it, totally different genres, but you gotta love it. I think there might be some counterpoint in this solo too. You've got these two different melodies in the piano.
1: um, And then eventually you've got the whole band going. I mean, it's really great. Yeah, I think this is a really well done track. I love how we start off with this great triumphant melody at the beginning, right? Really lively, really fun. You've got a couple of, you know, uh, solos, you know, obviously with the clarinet, with the trumpet, and then how about the gradual build into this grand finale for Sweetie Deer, uh, which we don't actually hear in the episode in full because it kind of fades out a little bit earlier uh, to a different scene. But yeah, I love, and we're going to talk about this, I think, the whole episode, whoever the piano player was for, whether it was the Bavarian Philharmonic Orchestra or this sort of small jazz band that they put together, I love the distinct sound. I mean, it really kind of brings you back to the old sort of ragtime, sort of, you know, really early night. 90- 1920s, you know, early 20th century style, Uh, and even the piano that they were using, I think, has that sort of old vintage feel to it. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, And again, I love the slow crescendo, right? Simple, simple harmony here, but it's driving forward, right? We see the trumpet and the clarinet over the piano just a slightly, and then finally you get this full blast and this great ending, right? This gradual sort of upbeat, you know, uh, syncopation that actually ends off with the drums here, so as always, listen to that syncopation.
0: Right, and now let's transition into track number two, My Handyman. Um, and this is one of Goldie's uh, performances. And really, I think her talent shines through here. She's got excellent vocals um, and a great performance. She puts a lot of, I think, a lot of herself into it. And at the same time, it's not just the vocals here. You've got some syncopation and the clarinets and the brass. I love that piano entrance. This one is a lot more of an andante, you know, slow tempo. And, I mean, so is the steady drums and the wandering piano theme. I mean, a lot of this is really good. I mean, you got to have some stuff to say about it too, though, right?
1: Oh, yeah. And I think there's uh, a lot going on here when you look at My Handyman. I mean, first of all, let's talk about those lyrics. My gosh, those are <laughs> funny. Uh, yeah, this was an original piece. Uh, I believe this was or at least the version that I've heard that's original, is by Ethel Waters, who kind of has a very similar sort of uh, style to Maria Howell, who, yeah, like you said, very talented vocalist. Uh, You definitely see this shine through. I think this is one of her better tracks uh, in the episode. And I want to talk about the piano interlude at the beginning, which I've always loved. And it's kind of interesting how it starts off with a sort of kind of lively tone, right? It's it's a little different than the sort of ragtime we were hearing from the piano in Sweetie Dear. What's really well done is I think it kind of has a nice resolution into her first sort of set of lyrics because it's like 10 seconds of piano and then it transitions into the drums and the bass obviously adding into that and we start with the chorus. But what I love at the beginning here is you know, on the left hand obviously we've got just some classic harmony chords, right? Very, very simple. And on the right hand, we've got this nice little piano interlude. I love when it gets to that B-flat. It's just a really nice accidental that they pop in there that has such a satisfying resolution. Uh, You'll you'll know it when you hear it, um, even if you can't recognize the B-flat. But it's just, it's really, really well done, I think. And um, yeah, obviously, uh, they're using the brush on the drums, a very you know popular jazz technique uh using you know instead of a drumstick you know a brush i think there's another name for it but i don't know what it is Uh, obviously on you know either a cymbal or you know an actual snare itself and then yeah this gradual build of i think this chorus that is really well set up right you have a different tune every time but different lyrics and obviously the lyrics have this rhyme scheme which is what makes indie you know obviously you know so embarrassed by this whole thing right uh but yeah the phrasing i think is really well done she has excellent vibrato as well and uh yeah, let's just jump into the first section of My Handyman.
2: Whoever said a good man was hard to find Positively, absolutely, sure was blind I found the best that ever was is just some of the things he does. He shakes my ashes, greases my griddle, churns my butter, strokes my fiddle. My man is such a handy man. He threads my needle, creams my wheat. Heats my heater, chops my meat. My man is such a man.
0: Now let's get into the second section of this. Um, I mean, I like how you have all these different parts contesting each other. And that bass pizzicato is nice to listen to. A pretty steady beat, you know. And this is really the intro to Sydney's clarinet, you know. And I think... The tone of the piece has shifted from, I guess, a little more speculative. Um, It switches from that, and it's a little more uh, upbeat, I think. If you listen to the piano chords uh, at the beginning versus now, I think there's quite a difference. Um, And this is really the intro to Sidney's clarinet, Indy's just observing in awe.
1: Yeah, and I like as well how you have this introduction to Sidney's sort of deep resonant sound of the clarinet, right? He's not always the soloist in every one of these tracks, but you'll hear how it was just kind of Goldie and then the piano just kind of slightly commenting on it. And then Sidney Bechet and his clarinet comes and wows the audience, right? And so it's kind of nice that they have that sort of uh, orchestration, I think, is which is well done. Um, and again, I think these new arrangements, they sound really, really kind of fresh and new, but still have that sort of old sort of 1920s feel to them. Uh, so I think they're well done in that respect. And, you know, this is kind of a somewhat mellow and warm piece. I mean, coming off of, you know, obviously Sweetie Dear, we've got a definitely a different tone here, a different style of music. Um, and again, I mean, the melodic pattern is very similar, as are the lyrics. Uh, but yeah, definitely also uh, take a listen to how this track evolves from the very start with that small piano until this sort of more full-fledged theme here, uh, which represents a fantastic ostinato. He
2: flats my flapjacks Flames off the table Feeds the horses in my stable My man is such a handy man Sometimes he's up long before dawn Busy trimming the rough edges off of my lawn Such
0: a man. All right, now let's get into Warehouse Battle. This is um, a really interesting track overall, but in this section here you have these somber, you know, low register strings, uh, and they give you this mysterious, I guess, backdrop along with this harp that comes in, and it kind of reminds me of, in a way, uh, Return of the Jedi, you know, you've got that harp that plays Darth Vader's theme, for instance. Um, and then another thing to note on the chimes in this are the cue to the next part of the track, um, and it's it really does create that mystical sense. Uh, reminds me a little bit of John Williams, just in that way. And also the woodwinds here. I mean, the woodwinds and violins definitely carry that creepy melody. There's a lot to say about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I like about this that you mentioned is, you know, this is the f- kind of one of the big non diegetic pieces that we have. At least it lasts for almost six minutes uh, during the warehouse battle when uh, Indy, Elliot, and uh, Hemingway obviously sneak into the office, right? And we hear this sort of very somber, like you said, uh, sort of track here. Obviously, it's much more orchestral than it is sort of uh, a jazz theme here. We've obviously got the sort of motif for Colosimo's murder that we've heard throughout the entirety of the second half, comes back here when they're finally, you know, uh, looking through, you know, all the drawers and things, and Elliot just whips out a gun, right? And then uh, same situation when Indy is hiding under the truck. And this kind of interesting sort of quiet, mysterious tone comes very, very different than anything we've heard so far. Uh, But what I love is that I think... It's very well done in setting a mood, uh, giving us a cognitive function, uh, giving us this implicit and sort of emotive feeling. How are you supposed to react to what is being shown on screen? And I think this is a great job of that. This really well done kind of reminds me of some of the uh, music from Paris 1916, also done by McNeely. Uh, There's that one cue when uh, he's sort of spying on Matahari. This sounds very similar, I think, to that. So, yeah, let's take a listen to our first section of Warehouse Battle.
0: Now let's get into the next section here. We get this, I mean, it's quite a transition from the uh, the creepy feeling of the first one to all of a sudden you have this frantic tempo, it's quite an allegro, and you have this call and response between all these different parts and everything, and that one theme after the drum solo is, you know, the ostinato that we hear quite a lot. And just to say, this is a really cool thing we're having here, an orchestral theme that transitions to jazz. Um, And I love the muted trumpets really gives that 1920s feeling to the whole thing. Um, It's really a specific sound and, you know, it carries all these climbing scales and arpeggios. Um, And it's really, I think, a lot of good fun.
1: Oh, yeah. And I think what's really well done about this is just the way that the jazz kicks in. I mean, you really feel that moment when... Indy finally, you know, is done hiding over the truck, and then when he takes the wheel and goes to town, right? I mean, he slaps the guy with the door handle of the truck, and just those blaring trumpets and trombones just get right into that. And I love the way that Joe McNeely is able to transition from these two different styles so quickly. Um, It does have that 1920s feel. There's climbing scales and arpeggios all over the place. The upbeat percussion, which is really also uh, paired with some fantastic dynamics here. When you, like you said, that uh, theme that comes back, first heard uh, Uh, earlier in the episode uh, when they're at the police station obviously that kind of becomes a big theme right here Um, and that big band sound I mean you talk about the 1920s jazz in the 20s uh, Chicago right I mean it has that big band sound that you're looking for right not as much as Sweetie Deer that was a little bit more of a sort of smaller ensemble this I think has that big sort of not really count Basie because I think his his style was a little different but Maybe like one of Duke Ellington's sort of old bands, very similar to that uh, sort of tone here, which I think is really, really uh, coming across well in this next section of Warehouse Battle.
0: Getting right into the third one here, um, you get this repeated upwards movement. There's so many competing themes right here, all, you know, trying to have their own melody that you can get kind of lost in it, but I think it's lost in a good way. It's sort of, I mean, this is a very chaotic scene, uh, so I think the chaos suits the moment. And then you get the return of the ostinato, but I think it's even more frantic than the last time we heard it a little earlier. Um, And that just shows that tension has been building throughout this whole, you know, fight sequence and car chase and everything. Um, So yeah, it's really great. I love all these competing solos. And they, you know, I love how they suddenly come together into the main theme. Fantastic.
1: Yeah, I especially love the sort of clarinet solo, which sounds a little more like Benny Goodman to me than it does, say, Sidney Bechet. But oh, I mean, I love that section. How awesome is that? Just that frantic sort of swing style. And again, giving you this idea of So what is going on in this scene? How do you create that sort of tension? How do you create that sort of emotion within the audience? I think this is well done. You know, I mean, usually we talk about sort of chase music. I mean, we look at Desert Chase from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? But here... It has a little bit more of that jazz influence and it's still possible to get that same type of style and feel uh we gradually come back together in this sort of grand style i love how each instrument as we talked about earlier the kind of structure of a lot of these sort of cues and sets uh is where you have this melody at the beginning and one other thing that i think is really key here to giving us this sound is the glissandos uh coming from the trombone i mean that's a really sort of iconic part of this type of jazz in the 1920s at least from other recordings i've heard and so i like that it kind of comes here on this reprise of themes we've heard earlier
0: We're getting into this fourth section here. This section has a lot of syncopation, and I, I like how you have this rhythmic throbbing that bursts into all this brass, and then you have this these competing sections that go back and forth, and, you know, this is a car chase scene, so at the same way you have these competing sections, you also have the cars competing. And one of the things I really liked about this is there's this Clarinet siren sound that almost makes you think of the police, but of course, these aren't the police. These are, you know, bad guys out to get them.
1: Definitely. And I think that's one thing that's really cool about. Uh, sort of being a little bit more philosophical with this music and talking about it in this way is, you know, there are, I think, instances and sync points. And when you see composers try to uh, sort of mimic something or some object or some idea, specific musical motifs or little sort of uh, added sort of musical flares to represent something. And in this case, perhaps a siren of a police officer or something in that uh, same idea. And yeah, I mean, I love the saxophone that kind of gets thrown in here. Obviously, haven't really talked about the saxophone almost at all in Young Indie, uh, You know, we've talked about a lot of instruments, pretty much we've touched on everything in the orchestra at this point, except the saxophone uh, really obviously gets its chance to shine here, same as in Scandal 1920 because of the jazz. Uh, We also have a baritone sax in Princeton 1916. uh, The Edward Stratemeyer episode. Uh, That's a really cool use of the saxophone, which we'll get to eventually. The drums are really anchoring the rhythm. We've got that trumpet solo. Uh, The phrasing, I think, to extend the beats is really well done, uh, I think, as well. You talk about those really fine accents. Just the quality of the orchestra. I mean, the the synchronization here of this section is so tight. It's really well done. Uh, There's a little ending trill at the end there. Uh, We get more of these sort of percussion interludes where the so the orchestra kind of dies out and then we just have the percussion. Uh, but yeah, as the car chase continues, uh, so does the complexity of warehouse battle.
0: Finally, in this fifth section here, um, this is where the car chase comes to an end. Of course, in a little bit of a, you might say, a slowdown, <laughs> um, and the music really goes with that. You have this winding down of all the instruments, the tempo, and everything. All of it just comes to a stop. I mean, it really sounds like musically running out of gas, um, and it really complements the scene. I mean, I think one other thing I noticed too: the trumpet sounds almost like the "wow, wow, wow" sound effect. Literally, it's like when you lose something in a game and it's all childish, that's that's the sound you got.
1: Yeah, I love the cognitive sort of function that comes off of this scene. I mean, it is very sort of like uh, reminiscent of what actually happens. I think, you know, you have a little bit of that atonal sound, right? It does not feel very satisfying when this track comes to a close. And, you know, we had this sort of perfect triumphant theme towards the beginning. There's that hilarious scene when Indy's on the top of the car and he's just like banging on the top of it with excitement, has this hilarious laugh. And that resolution to the Be Natural there, uh you know has this very triumphant theme and then it kind of has these really sort of exaggerated glissandos moving down the scale uh with the trumpets and trombones emphasizing these certain notes the pace and the tempo really kind of comes down it feels like it's dragging on you almost really slowing down as of course the gas like you said that was a great sort of interpretation that's what happens there how about that piano hit just at the end the militaristic doer almost of the low brass kind of really comes in there at the end there as we see obviously the car becomes surrounded uh this sharp and grim tone i mean really really i think uh, a well-done track that has a very unsettling feeling uh to finish this final climactic battle
0: Let's get into 12th Street Rag, another one of the diegetic pieces here. And it's very brassy. Um, This is where, you know, Indy and, you know, Armstrong is one of the performers there. And it's really cool to see these. I mean, we'll talk about Armstrong later. He's such a great... Uh, I guess historical interpretation of him, but yeah, you have this first section. It's you know low brass, and it gets you, you have some stuff building on it, and the piano and brass pizzicato really set the rhythm. I think you said the structure is something like A B C A. I love that duet between the the trumpet that's muted and unmuted. It's really
1: a great pulse oh absolutely i think it's a really really great sort of duet if you will of yeah we have got king oliver and Louis armstrong performing live in this diegetic piece we've got this classic melody on a trumpet which i think is is really a lot more melodic right we don't see a lot of improvisation here yet and you talked about the structure yeah i think if you look at this piece and we'll play all three sections on this one specifically so you can hear it you've got that a section which is the original melody you've got b which is the uh sort of um improv for both of the trumpet and the muted trumpet and then you got C which is the piano ragtime and of course we'll talk all about that and then finally leading into the A section again which is the theme kind of coming back uh, towards the beginning and I think it's a really really great example of most typical jazz pieces and how this sort of transpires here you talked about Louis Armstrong I mean he and in, in himself you know obviously has a specific sound and being able to replicate that in the recordings is difficult I think they did a really good job here uh, with that And uh, I like as well just, um, you know, how this this track is a little bit more different than, say, Sweetie Deer, which obviously had a lot of stuff going on. This one is a little bit more simple and refined. There's a little bit of a difference in each one, and I like how that's presented. So let's take a listen to the first section of 12th Street Rag.
0: Now moving on to section 2, I really like the accented piano here. Um and also that cowbell in the background, you might pick that up. It's really a fun touch and it, you know, it adds to the whole percussion that you're hearing as well. And I guess this is I think in my personal opinion, it's a little bit too brass heavy, but That's just a personal opinion, Um, though I do like how, you know, that both of these trumpets have their own solos.
1: Yeah, and I do like as well the use of a lot of these mutes on a trumpet. Uh, You know, obviously a mute, you know, uh, can be used on a lot of different instruments, string instruments, obviously, where it actually dampens the bridge and gives it a little bit more of sort of a muffled sound to it um it's not necessarily a bad sound it's just a little bit less crisp and less refined um and the same thing happens with a trumpet very common in jazz music as well uh, not so common on a string instrument um well actually uh, a good score to that as an example of a mute uh, is Psycho, uh, Bernard Herman, uses a, an entirely muted string orchestra, which is really cool. That's how it has such kind of that deep sound. It's not as melodic as well. Um, and here you kind of have a similar situation here where you do have this comparison side by side of a trumpet and a muted trumpet. And I think it's nice, kind of an interesting duet here for this 12th Street Rag, uh, which again, another famous popular jazz piece, uh, not something that uh, was necessarily originally created by McNeely. But again, you also talk about the, the improv improvisation here, uh which isn't necessarily matching any original recording of the 12th Street Rag, right? It is going to be a little bit different because it's a new arrangement. And I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind uh when listening to this terrific solo.
0: Now this next one, oh my gosh, you gotta listen to that syncopation, right? Uh, the piano solo, I think it's really great, um, and eventually it does give away to the trumpets again. Uh, however, I like how this um, the hi-hat emphasizes the offbeat in the, the last bit of this section here. Uh, and I like the way you know it rounds out into a nice big
1: bum at the end. Um, not all of them do that, but this one does. Again, I love this ragtime piano. Man, I mean, turn up the volume on this one and really start jamming out to this. I mean, this is fantastic. Um, And again, you know, it's interesting when you talk about the arrangements because I just thought of this now. We talked about how, sweetie, dear, you don't hear uh, much of the piano at the end there. Or at least it's died down and underscored um, a little bit more in this one. Uh, So it's interesting how this always changes between what you're hearing on the CD and what you're hearing within the actual episode. But how about that lively piano again? uh, The percussion drowns out a little bit as well. And then, of course, this full theme comes back. How about that blaring, rich sound to kind of have this return to this, you know, more traditional melody? And again, we see how jazz is very different from different types of music, but also has a similar structure, right? And I think that's an interesting thing to consider when you look at different types of pieces, the different instrumentation that we hear. And uh, yeah, let's take a listen to the grand finale of 12th Street Rag.
0: horizon this is our next one here and this is a complete tonal shift because this is no longer jazz it's the blues i mean i the blues is jazz but jazz isn't necessarily whatever it's like oranges and apples the blues is the blues it's got its own sound okay whatever (laughs) yeah um anyway this is a you know a much slower tempo i'd say maybe a largo or an andante um and listen to those drum rolls too i mean ooh um and this one is really led by the clarinet and the soprano sax uh and they they sound so interesting together i mean you could almost think it's two clarinets and uh, i like that sort of wailing sound i mean this is when indy finally gets to play the blues uh we mustn't forget that this is you know part of the episode right and so indy has finally earned the right to or i guess he's finally had the experience
1: uh to be like oh some things just suck and you have to play the blues right exactly and i think it is a really nice sort of uh comparison to the episode in terms of you know obviously he's so down after the whole like bureaucratic incident with you know obviously the corrupt police and then sydney boucher finally gives him the chance to play the blues like yeah it's, it's a nice moment there and you talked about the soprano saxophone which we should mention by the way uh as we obviously talked about at the beginning this is joel mcneely playing this how cool is that Um, And secondly, soprano sax is not a very popular jazz instrument. Uh, And there's actually two different types of soprano saxophones. I was curious about this because I noticed a soprano saxophone that Indy had in the episode looks different. Sometimes you can get a straight soprano saxophone, which actually looks almost like a clarinet. And you just talked about how they have a very similar sort of register. Uh, The clarinet and the soprano sax are very similar, so much so that Sidney Bechet actually played both of them during his career. Uh, And that's why he had it in the episode to give to Indy. Um, but there are also curved soprano saxophones just like say a tenor sax right so very similar there but yeah I do like how we have a shift in the blues you can tell Joe McNeely really understands the orchestra really understands writing jazz and blues and obviously the rolling drums and the snare do give it a bit of a different rhythmic pattern to it the meter obviously changes here with the tempo as well which you were talking about And uh, yeah, I think it's a very interesting track. You know, I'm not a huge fan of it to be quite honest. Um, I think the soprano saxophone sounds a little bit interesting in this one. I mean, we obviously see in the scandal 1920, Gershwin has that funny comment he's like a soprano saxophone in the jazz band i've never heard of that before right so uh it it is a little bit of an acquired taste i will say but i do love the harmony uh between the clarinet which has a bit more of a lower register in this particular piece with the soprano saxophone it's brilliantly done uh just musically i think this is a really impressive piece so let's take a listen to blue horizon
0: Let's get into the last part of this. I mean, I personally, I think maybe I like it a little more than you do, um, but it's too bad it fades away. But I guess it's just the end of the episode, you know, that's how it works. Um, but one thing you could say is that in the way this is different from jazz because the melody is pretty consistent throughout, you know, it's not constantly evolving the same way it might be in a more upbeat improvisational jazz uh, set. This one is a little more consistent to the same tone throughout the whole thing. And one thing you can say is you do hear some muted trumpet in here, uh, and it's a little bit more of a full sound in the second section than it was in the first section.
1: And that's an interesting observation, actually, about sort of the difference between blues and jazz there, and this idea that there is more of a consistent melody, or at least a consistent pulse, a consistent tempo, a rhythm throughout. It's not evolving in that way, and I don't actually know if that is the case for blues, but... Frankly, you guys should be taking everything we're saying with a grain of salt at this point. I mean, uh, we're not experts on this stuff, but uh, what I do like is I think it does present sort of this lack of finality to the episode. You talked about the fade out there, which was probably just done by the sound editors rather than obviously in the studio. But I do think that's a really nice way to transition into the bookend. Um, It kind of adds a little bit of a nice tone. So, uh, yeah, let's take a listen to the last section of Blue Horizon.
0: Now, let's do Corrupt Police. This is a really good one. Definitely one of my favorites from the episode. Uh, But it starts with these ominous strings and horns, and that steady rhythm of cellos. You hear that, you know, the police slash Torrio, Al Capone, ostinato, and it it really demonstrates that McNeely
1: sound, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. I mean, McNeely, a master of his craft. And again, it's interesting how we talk about Corrupt Police and Warehouse Battle, Uh, to such high esteem uh, because they sound more like his traditional music rather than just the jazz and uh, you know, diegetic pieces that we've been talking about, but hey, I mean, I gotta give this guy credit. I love Corrupt Police. It's a really well-done track. I love the suspenseful and eerie violins, and like you said, very authentic of McNeely's sound. Reminds me a little bit of the Verdun soundtrack. Um, and the tremolo is so subtle. Um, again, very legato, uh, very quiet, very subtle uh, when he's looking at all the evidence. Um, and just how about this sort of ominous tone, right? A- episode that's been so sort of fun and lively about learning jazz And you see how interesting connection that I just made to the the last track, um, how this transitions into the blues. Corrupt Police is kind of that transition into the blues, right? Because it's a little bit more of a less uh, sort of exciting and and thrilling sort of track here that represents the uh, sort of bureaucracy uh of chicago and you know obviously the 1920s obviously you know al capone and torio having a little bit of leeway uh over uh this you know police officer here so yeah i think a really really well done track to communicate corrupt police
0: corrupt police continued I have to say I love that mandolin I think it's mandolin uh, but it really gives you that European sound hints at the Italian connection you know Italian mafia Um, and again of course this is a non-diegetic piece one of the few ones we're actually reviewing here and then you have this transition from the orchestral score to the jazz it really reminds me a lot of Newt says goodbye to Tina um, which is from fantastic beasts and it's a James Newton Howard score the transition the way it's so smooth It really does remind me of it.
1: And it's interesting when you talk about sort of the differences uh, between the style of jazz and blues uh, in a track like Corrupt Police versus what we had at the very top with Sweetie Deer at the beginning of the episode. And it kind of takes me back to sort of the original uh, premise for this episode and how it was supposed to be two separate episodes. But the second half, I like a lot more as far as the music goes and the jazz arrangements too are very very different they have more that big band duke ellington sound there's a little bit more of that blues flair into it and there really is a big difference which unfortunately we're not talking about this in chronological order but rather going through the sources in order Uh, but if you really pay attention to the close uh, differences in between the first half and the second half of music, it's really interesting to take a look at and definitely is very apparent here. And definitely as well, you know, going back to what you were saying, the muted trumpet for this mini theme uh, is wonderful. Uh, You know, you kind of hear the same idea when Colosimo gets murdered, obviously, with his big violin crescendo. Very dramatic and over the top, right? And then a very simple rhythm going up and down the scale. Uh, We've got a great brass section with this amazing transition that you talked about. I mean, uh, yeah, really, really impressive what mealy was able to pull off it's so swift and smooth i mean it's crazy to listen to uh and then the mini piano trill almost represents a little bit of comedy you'll remember uh, ben hecht comes down to ernest hemingway down at the bottom of the stairs that transitions to like you were saying that almost feel of the blues you're left hanging at the end with really nothing left right you've had these harsh sounding accents and this low brass and then you're just kind of left hanging there as Indy then is just kind of out there all at that cafe right just talking about well, you know, I saw this kind of thing in the war, right? Corrupt police, you know, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, talk about the tonality of the soundtrack and the way in which it represents the scene. I think this is wonderfully done.
0: let's do our next one here, I'm a Little Blackbird, uh, and this one is definitely an upbeat rhythm, sort of, I think you could even say swung, um, and I, of course, as always, uh, Maria's vocals are great, and uh, I like the muted trumpet here, that's pretty good. Um, the bass, I don't know if you would call it quite walking bass, but it does have a similar feeling to it. Overall though, I have to say, this isn't really my favorite one, I like My Handyman better, um, and not to say this is a bad one, it's nice, but
1: it's not great. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you here. I think out of all the tracks that we reviewed, not the biggest fan of this one, mainly just because I don't really think there's a whole lot going on. We have this instrumental sort of uh, interlude here to start off, which we don't actually hear in the episode very much. Uh, Again, it's a different arrangement in the actual episode versus the CD. It's very simple, right? We hear the clarinet, the saxophone commenting on it a little bit, Um, the muted trumpet, very soft, obviously, very kind of relaxed. Uh, the rolling snares at the beginning. Um, But yeah, obviously, I think the vocal parts are the focal point. I mean, Maria Howell, Goldie, she does a great job. Um, Really, really like it. But as far as arrangements go, and especially with music in the 20s, what I always thought was interesting about this episode is how a lot of this was kind of more, uh, not necessarily underrated, but just not as popular. I mean, you talk about Sidney Bechet and all of these jazz tracks. I mean, when I think of the 1920s, first thing that comes to mind to me is like Glenn Miller and that type of music. But it's interesting, you know, a lot of these sort of more lesser known arrangements you know I'm a little blackbird again not an original piece by McNeely something that Sidney Bechet I think had uh done a record of at one point so interesting as well I'm not a huge fan of this one um I do as well though like the clarinet improv incorporating Sidney Bechet in different ways as we talked about a little bit earlier uh but yeah let's take a listen to I'm a little blackbird
2: Blackbird looking for a bluebird, too. You know, little blackbirds get a little lonesome, too. I've been all over from east to the west in search of someone to feather my nest Why can't I find one the same as you do? So must be that I am a woo-woo. I'm a little jazz looking for a too.
0: Now getting into I can't believe you're in love with me, this one has something fantastic to it and that's of course the impersonation of Armstrong. The voice! Oh! Spot on. Chef's kiss ah so good uh, <laughs> i mean it's way cool. too is accurate <laughs> i mean yeah i mean other things you can say about this it's pretty upbeat um but i'd say it's really not hyper energetic a lot of the times you will have an upbeat set you know very energetic of course you know this one i think it's relaxing it's warm it's upbeat but it's not too upbeat you know and another thing which is really great about this of course is that trumpet riff the instrumentals and vocals i think here are just really well balanced
1: you know Absolutely. I think this is a really fantastic track when you look at it. It's not like one of the ones that immediately popped into my mind is, hey, this is one of my favorites. But it's interesting, to your point. I think the, the instrumental parts and the vocal parts are wonderfully mixed. I think it's really, really well done. And again, the beginning there with this amazing trumpet riff, that saxophone in there, which gets a little bit of a sort of uh, you know, improv to kind of sneak its way in there as everything else dies down. And then yeah, you talked about Louis Armstrong. I mean, it's funny how we're like celebrating this guy so much we didn't even talk about him in our characters episode um, which i guess he barely appears in the episode that much but whoever did the sort of uh singing vocal parts for Louis armstrong here this guy sounds just like him i mean holy cow i mean if you listen to some original recordings of lewis armstrong and compare it to this what an incredible voice to kind of pair there and uh yeah without further ado i think you should just listen to it for yourself so here is i can't believe you're in love with me
2: Never knew what they you could do. do
3: yeah,
0: Alright, carrying on to the next part. I mean I have to say I love that piano in the back. It's real good. Fantastic, great performance. Um, and I gotta say, there's some great blending, and I'd say maybe even like weaving together in a part of the brass when they share the part and when they have their own parts that they're both playing simultaneously.
1: Especially the ending of this track uh, with the trumpet there kind of gets into that decrescendo first and then it kind of jumps back up to that final cadence to end the track. I mean really really kind of a cool piece. Trumpet wasn't super featured in this track specifically uh, but I also like uh, the one instance uh, at least in the music that we're reviewing here where we have some scatting. Uh, scatting, obviously, very popular a uh, vocal technique in jazz. And uh, boy, Maria Howell does a great job here. And to be quite honest, you know, this isn't really my favorite track, but I think really giving credit to the fact that I think this is really well arranged when you talk about all these jazz arrangements. I think the balance uh, that we talked about between the instrumental and the vocal parts is well done. Um, uh, there's a nice you know element of scatting, which we haven't heard previously before. Uh, the saxophone in there with a little bit of a trumpet riff, just kind of really cool nice little elements thrown in there and then i think the tempo is really really nice i just i don't know something about this arrangement i think was really really well executed so uh yeah lots to like here when uh, looking at this last section here
0: All right, now let's do Tiger Rag. Um, and this is right after, uh, you know, Goldie is singing Handyman. And now Goldie has come back and Indy and Goldie are talking about Sydney. And Indy's like, how do he get so good? And obviously, of course, he's been playing for 20 years. So that's the explanation. But this piece is, you know, a very quick tempo. And basically, what's happening here is Sydney is just going off. Uh, he's totally flexing. And as he's flexing, Indy and Goldie are talking about how good he is. That's basically what this is here. This is here to demonstrate to the audience that Sydney knows his stuff. He's really good. And this is our first time to really see him shine uh, in all his glory.
1: I think that's actually a really great point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you look at this track, just holistically, absolutely. I mean, this is really when Uh, well, Bob Wilber in the recordings, but Sidney Bechet gets to kind of flex some chops here and really show us what it's all about. I mean, good Lord. This is a really, really great one. I love the, uh, improvisation that goes on in this track. Really stunning. Very masterfully crafted here. Um, and again, it starts off with this sort of fast paced, accented brass. It's just simple notes. It's all the same. Then there's a little bit of that ending sort of phrase to change it, the climbing pattern. Uh, And then I think the rhythmic uh, sort of hits in the percussion section really match perfectly with kind of the tempo and the sort of lively, upbeat uh, runs and arpeggios that are just sprawling throughout this whole track. And uh, yeah, I mean, when you talk about the epitome of Sidney Bechet, his sort of style of clarinet, look no further than Tiger Rag.
0: Into section two now, I gotta say, I love that trumpet solo, and you know, the hi hat on the back is pretty dang good too. Oh, yeah, to the piano, oh my gosh. Um, and honestly, I am disappointed that it fades out. I mean, this has got to be like one of the best improv solos in the whole thing, and A, it fades out, and B, it's not even in the episode.
1: Yeah, kind of disappointing there about that last uh piano section, you're right, because I think it does transition after the end of the trumpet solo there. Into, I believe there's, I think a scene with Indy back at his dorm or something. Uh, But yeah, oh my god, what a dynamite section on the piano. We talked about how we loved the style of whoever this pianist was, and the ragtime feel that you get in the 20s. Uh, I love the style of this, really. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, There's a couple of trills building off the melody, just runs up and down, scales and arpeggios. I mean, uh, again, you talk about the syncopation a little bit with the drums, uh, you know, on the offbeats there. And then also, I mean, how about such a rapid, fast-paced sound uh, with the piano? Really wish we had a chance to hear this in the episode, but I guess a little bit grateful that we got this on the CD. So uh, yeah, let's take a listen to uh, the trumpet solo and piano solo
3: here.
0: now let's get into twinkle dixie this is Indy's musical debut as an actual jazz artist you know he's not performing at some frat party thinking he knows his stuff when he really doesn't this is him (laughs) doing it the right way for the first time right right um and i think somehow he makes twinkle a little bit appealing to listen to i mean you know it's kind of remarkable that they make something so simple
1: complex enough to make it interesting yeah, and how about giving a ton of credit to Joel McNeely, who came up with this entirely original arrangement? of Twinkle Twinkle and we learned in the episode earlier with Sidney Bechet you know rhythm and improvisation is what makes jazz and he says you can play St. Louis Rag so straight it's not going to be jazz anymore right I mean similar kind of idea here the swinging eighth notes is really kind of the deciding factor that changes the style of this melody how do you change something from just a regular melody that's already been crafted into jazz it's that swinging eighth notes right triplet pattern the first note is shorter than the last two and it gives it a new feel to it adding that new flair right there's a couple of grace notes that they add in there you know adding a couple of solos here and there and uh yeah again obviously this is joel McNeely playing soprano sax i think he does a great job here uh really well done in terms of the harmony uh, as well as the trumpet and the clarinet kind of take it away add a little bit of that extra section uh but yeah let's listen to Indy's musical debut twinkle dixie
0: Now, we'll be moving into some of the um, unreleased tracks that we had to dig up from other places, and that's a bit of archaeology that Will can tell you about if he wants to. But um, here we have Turkey in the Straw, and this is a very classic melody, of course, and I think in this recording, I mean, it's a decent variation on the melody, you know, the improv is. Overall, I'm really not that much of a fan of this, and I honestly, I liked it better in the episode, you know, when you got to hear all the different versions of it. That's where I liked it.
1: Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, the context of it and having sort of all those different renditions one after the other. Um, I do like this, though, and especially as a piece for the TV credits, uh, the track that we're going to play here is from the original broadcast. Uh, so it is from the uh, either the VHS copies, the laser discs, or an actual old recording, and ironically enough, I think this is one of the few instances from the TV credits where it actually sounds better like this, because it does sound like an old vinyl record, which you actually have pointed out, Elijah, which I didn't even consider, um, and it does sound really cool. I mean, you have the clarinet which is just so tight. I mean, I love the clarinet parts in this entire episode. The trumpet comes back and takes it away, obviously a focal point in orchestral film scores as is uh the same here in jazz. And then it kind of comes together and you talk about the actual original melody of turkey and the straw the last 20 seconds of this is pretty much all improv just following that same scale pattern that same melodic structure wonderful tone and style and again hats off to mcneely for coming up with some really cool renditions of turkey and the straw of course maybe you're a little bit sick of the actual melody itself but still really really well done and uh yeah let's take a listen to turkey and the straw
0: Now, moving on from listening to Turkey in the Straw, let's get into Chicago Jazz. And this one, it sounds a lot like Warehouse Battle, you might notice, Um, especially at the beginning here. And I do like the percussion in here, it's pretty good. Um, And as Will said earlier, I do like the way it sounds like a vinyl. This is one of the few times where the poor quality that we have to endure actually might be enjoyable. You know, as a final point, Uh, If this were switched with Warehouse Battle, I think it would be a little bit poorer, Um, and I think that the the rendition that they went with in the episode um, is a lot more lively, and I think that really enhances the um, suspense and the tension in the whole scene, you know, trying to fight and escape and have that car chase.
1: Right, and I think building off of what you're trying to articulate here is that this uh, track is actually unused in the episode. Uh, we don't actually hear it at all, uh, but the only sort of slight reference to this track is is three, four minutes in, I want to say, of Warehouse Battle, where you have a very similar motif that comes up. Uh, I think we referenced a little bit earlier in the soundtrack review. So yeah, I mean, when you think about this entire track with this kind of cool vibraphone start, you don't hear a vibraphone that often in these tracks, but it is an important element of jazz music. Um, You still have this idea of sort of, okay, if this was an unused track, where would it have gone in the episode? And going back to what I was kind of touching on earlier, the big band sound, I think, that you get in the second half, specifically with Chicago Jazz, and the next track we'll take a look at Police Station, you still have this sort of more traditional orchestral style mixed with this big band jazz sound. I like it a lot more, and so you can definitely tell this was going to be used in the second half. Uh, but it's just called Chicago jazz because we don't know where it came from. And yeah, like you said, I think the middle section comes together really nicely after that big percussion hit. And what a great tune! I mean, this is a really one that you know you really can jam out to. I mean, it's got much more melodic than a lot of the other ones. The trumpet and the woodwinds in there. Uh, the repetition I think that's added here. Uh, it does kind of lack a little bit of finality towards the end as it just kind of fades out. It's not a big hit. But yeah, I mean, for a track that doesn't even appear in the episode, this is really cool. And, you know, when we talk about the possibility of a future complete soundtrack release to Young Indie, which I know myself and a couple of other people are eagerly awaiting. I think the one thing that's interesting is you talk about sort of cool finds that, you know, we may not even know about when it comes to the soundtrack to Young Indie. And to be quite honest, I think Mystery of the Blues would probably be an unsung hero when it comes to a soundtrack release. I mean, talk about the amount of music in this episode already, the fact that the arrangements are different. I'm sure there were a couple of period pieces that George Lucas rejected, um, and then unreleased and alternate takes like this. If we ever do get a full soundtrack release to Young Indy... I'd keep an eye on Mystery of the Blues as one that would have a ton of really kind of new and exciting uh, content to take a look at. Uh, And maybe we got a hint of that here with Chicago Jazz.
0: Now getting into the final piece we will be reviewing today, and the last one on the DVD credits, we have Police Station slash Potato Blues, Um, and this is at the police station. It's the police ostinato, you hear that right off the bat, and you have this muted trumpet theme, which, you know, has a
1: crescendo to it, and it repeats. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's a lot to like here with uh, this track, which kind of coming off Chicago Jazz is a very similar style to it and sounds just really unique, but true to kind of the style of the 20s. And how about this awesome intro? I mean, the swung eighth notes, these swelling accents, right? Um, and the underscoring here is very interesting because this is during that scene when they're at the police station, you know, stealing the donuts with Ben Hecht and uh, Ernest Hemingway, and you don't really hear it a whole lot. And... Uh, But I still think this big band sound really allows an opportunity to present itself, you know, when it's played in the DVD credits here. And again, how about these glissandos from the trombone? Ooh, I just love that sound. That's really iconic, I think, of the 20s. You've got the trumpets, uh, the tempo change with sort of uh, the piano sort of uh, little interlude there. And then definitely a more melodic approach. Again, when we talk about these jazz tracks, a little bit less improv and more of a structured style to an orchestral track like this. So let's take a listen to uh, Police Station, Potato Blues. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>
0: Now, continuing in our police station slash potato blues adventure. Oh yeah, I have to say, because you're going to love this piano syncopation coming up. It's it's really good. I love it. The end, though, there's this banjo strum. Listen carefully, but imagine being that banjo player, waiting through the whole piece just to play one chord. But that was I thought that was pretty odd. And I guess you could also say this really does feature the double bass, and it really gives us this 1920s feeling.
1: Yeah, and I think, too, going back to what you were saying just then, you know, uh, maybe the whole inclusion of the banjo there with that last strum, you said, like, that's weird. Why is there, like, one banjo chord perhaps going back to what we we're talking about in Corrupt Police uh, with this idea of sort of the Italian Mafia, maybe adding a little bit of that in there uh, for some sort of reason. Um, I'm not really sure what the intention was, but kind of cool to hear that. And yeah, oh my God, that piano section is really well done. You talk about the double bass getting a opportunity to present itself finally with a little bit of a solo there. The saxophone part is fantastic. Uh, the muted trumpet accents. And yeah, I think the underscoring is really fascinating. Again, when you talk about this arrangement, you know, kind of hearing tracks in a different way, right? I mean, when we hear this in the episode, we probably weren't very attuned to it because of all the dialogue. How about we round it off with something that actually lacks a little bit of finality in Police Station, Potato Blues. And on that note, that about concludes today's episode, folks. Uh, Looking back on Mystery of the Blues and the uh, jazz soundtrack that we have to look at here, uh, as I always like to do in these reviews, let's take a look at some of our favorite tracks and overall final thoughts about this score.
0: Yeah, I think I have discovered I am pretty much a sucker for these piano solos. Um I I really like Warehouse I really like Sweetie Deer um but I think my favorite one overall is Corrupt Police and that for me is because I love that transition um from the orchestral score to the jazz uh, it's so smooth it works so well and it does remind me of James Newton Howard's work in that way. And I do like that it's uh one of the few non-diegetic pieces that we get to hear uh cuz it gives the whole piece a different tone than some of the rest of them because it has that orchestral stuff that you don't really hear throughout most of the episode.
1: Yeah, I'd have to share uh that sentiment with you which uh well, when we're airborne with Germany behind us, then I'll share that sentiment. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh yeah, to echo off with what you were saying there Uh, I'd have to put Corrupt Police in my top three, along with uh, Warehouse Battle as well, and Police Station, Potato Blues. Uh, I really like the pieces in the second half a lot more. I think the big band sound of jazz, I think, is a little bit developed, and my kind of taste in terms of jazz music. Um, I love the diegetic pieces, you know, My Handyman, Sweetie Dear. You know, I'm I'm not going to sort of downplay those, but... My personal taste, yeah, I'd have to agree. I like the orchestral stuff a lot more. And Corrupt Police, that transition is really smooth, like you said, and I think does do a good job of giving us uh, a little bit of two different styles of music. I mean, it's kind of unfortunate that we really only had jazz to talk about because the second half is filled with tons of non-diegetic pieces uh, that we just don't have access to, unfortunately. Um, So Corrupt Police is one of the few examples where we see that, I think, really come alive and that great theme of sort of... uh, Al Capone and uh, that sort of Colosimo murder type of theme that comes up really all over the episode, I think is really, really well done. Um, you know, when you really think about the soundtrack to Young Indy, it's not as if it's sort of like, say, um, what's another TV show? He's, uh, Game of Thrones, for example, where like you have a season one soundtrack, a season two soundtrack and a season three soundtrack, right? But they're all kind of intertwined together with this main theme. Really, when you think about Young Indy, it's not just one soundtrack, it's 22 soundtracks, because each episode stands on its own. It's got a different musical style, a genre, and that's what I think is so appealing about this show, and what is so interesting about the actual uh, musical style of Young Indie. right? Um, all of these soundtracks are different. I mean, there's very few things besides Rosenthal's young indie theme that kind of unites this work uh it's just the the brilliance of of the compositional talent of these guys mcneely rosenthal and of course let's not forget about talgor bramson and sobel but uh yeah i think i think you know having a jazz episode somebody who you know studied jazz uh and joel mcneely uh he won an emmy nomination for this so i mean well deserved if you ask me i think he did a he did a marvelous job but uh yeah looking ahead we've got uh scandal 1920 is our next square view a little bit more jazz but uh done very differently, I should say. Looking forward to talking
0: about Gershwin, for sure. I really like the idea of getting to analyze an episode that's about music, musically. It'll be a nice way to build on what we've done here and, um, you know, explore more of the music of this era.
1: The 1920s uh, definitely aren't over in terms of our discussion of Young Indie, um, And with that said, I think that's about it for today's episode. Uh, as always, I'd like to uh, extend sort of the promotion to two great resources. If you want to uh, learn more about the topics we've discussed here, uh, check out a wonderful website called youngindianajonesmusic.com. Uh, particularly for this episode, uh, there's actually a queue list uh, for Mystery of the Blues uh, documenting every single uh, original jazz piece uh, that McNeely actually adapted. So, I mean, I don't know, say like at uh, I don't know, 25 minutes and 34 seconds or something, you're like, hey, I like that piece, but I didn't hear it on the soundtrack. Well, you can go and look up the original recording, uh, look at the title, look at the artist. Uh, so check out that cue list on youngindianajonesmusic.com if you're interested in jazz. And then of course, uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button to the Young Indie Score YouTube channel, your go-to spot for getting all of the extra music from the Lego Indiana Jones games, Staff of Kings, etc. So as always, I'd like to extend my thanks to those two gentlemen uh, for creating both those publications and making these soundtrack reviews possible in the first place. So, thanks again for joining us, guys. If this was your first episode listening and you enjoyed today's uh, content, please consider subscribing to our podcast uh, and leave a review as well to tell other people uh, about your experience with the show. Uh, As well, tell your family, tell your friends. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about us or contact us, uh, be sure to visit our website, www.theindianajonesuniverse.com. And if you'd like to join the conversation and our community of listeners, be sure to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the Indie Universe. So, thanks again for joining us, and we'll be back soon with another episode. And once again, I'm Elijah.
0: And I'm Will. And until next time,
3: so so long, long, Dr. Jones. Jones.